But now we don't have any value. Hello everyone. Uh, We're back. Um, I had to take a break. It's um, it's eggnog season, and so the season hiatus was largely built around. Um, so obviously, I've told you about. Um, I've told you about big boy season. Uh, big boy season is when I get bigger, and I've been doing this every year. Um, I'm a good bit heavier now than when we started. Uh, that's a real. That's a real fact. I'm about to hit the big. 200 um because every day for two months i drink one quart of eggnog um not gonna not gonna get into the calorie count there some people are sensitive to that totally understand that um it's a big number it's a big number that's on top of normal food um i'm not kidding uh i could if i wanted to right now i could move my camera so you you at home can't see anything and you shouldn't um but i have uh, three quarts of eggnog in my fridge right now Uh, because I finished one yesterday and I just came home from work and I've got to get to work on uh, my my eggnog for today. But uh, so that took me out for a bit. The first couple of weeks of acclimating to that much dairy every day takes me out, needed a hiatus, but we're back now. And uh, uh, a special treat. um, I've resurrected Gareth from the dead. Yeah, I'm back. Yes, he's back, back again, etc. Um, yeah, I defeated my other personality, Eden, in combat in the astral plane. So now I have resumed control over my body. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're we're back, baby. Original I keep, season two. I keep uh, uh, I keep uh, Gareth in control now with a a circle of strike witches figurines. Which, as as all of our yeah, great uh, all of our great anime patrons will know, uh, is a fantastic show in which what if World War II was fought by women who have helicopter legs? Um, I'm not one making them, that up, by the way. <laughs> one of them is an SS officer. If you one if of them want... is just straight up wearing the <laughs> SS uniform. If you want to look that up, that's real for you. And Gareth, of course cannot escape a circle of binding made of anime figurines so it is, uh it is true uh power I'll remains fine really let out wait so their legs are their legs are helicopter their uh, legs are helicopters no, yes no, they're, not, they're not helicopter no no you don't understand strike witches okay <laughs> i don't appreciate it on the level i do okay so strike witches was originally a line of uh figurines for horny people who are also horny about the second world war and um, a really normal sort of group of people that have no problem. Uh, yeah, like Venn diagram of underage girls, um, Nazi shit, and the Second World War, and military hardware. Just it's it's our fan base, you know. That's just uh, we've done our market research. That's what we we made this podcast to um, go out to. So they were figurines of Second World War planes. Like every strike witch is a different plane from the Second World War, personified as an anime girl, uh, and she ha- she has like a gun, and her legs are actually the like nose cones of the planes. So they're like they're not helicopters; they're the, they're the nose cones and the propellers of the different um, World War Two aircraft. I've um, I've linked an image for reference. Uh, oh, I, I was considering. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Those are those are some some anime girls with famously the uh, the anime uh, for Strike Witches is done by a little production studio named David Productions, which is also famous for uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. That's right. It's the same people. It's the same people. Wow. When we were waiting for new seasons of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, it's because they kept releasing new Strike Witches, baby. Um, as much as I would like to talk exclusively about Strike Witches. I, I didn't know what this was, and I feel like it's relevant in, in, to sort of both um, the topics at hand regarding Tokyo Murphys, but also, I think, current discourse you know, re uh, regurgitated discourse around a tight helicopter. Yeah, I was thinking um, about Isabel Fall a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think there's that, that, that dumb fucking anthology and their absolute fucking numb nuts uh, response to people being like, hey, you, you have someone who did a lot of transphobia on here. Can you guys do literally anything about that? And they're like, fuck you. And you're like, okay, well, that's not a really a great response. <laughs> It wasn't like they were even like "fuck you" because that would require like an emotion and some sort of like <laughs> basic humanity. It was it, what they their responses were like. That you remember that tweet of someone who said like, uh, "If someone who is like suicidal and is your friend contacts you and you just like can't be bothered dealing with them right now, you should reply to them and saying, I understand you've reached out to me and I'm currently at capacity. Uh, would you care to call back at a later date?" <laughs> well, that's really what they replies before, like. I really liked how their response to um, saying like the whole overstated harm thing and that things simply didn't happen it would be like, we've heard news that this is going to be salacious, but fuck it. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. It'd be like, we've heard news that some of you believe that our client, uh, Adolf Hitler, did a Holocaust and we think that didn't happen. I'm like, well, that's an interesting way to respond to that. That's that's definitely a fascinating way, not how I would have handled that. Um, I do just, just uh, if my publishers are listening, I don't think anyone involved in this is is comparable to Hitler. Um, <laughs> I don't think my publishers are listening. They're probably okay. They might. <laughs> no, pin that one exclusively on me. No, that that was that was done purely out of a out of a childish salaciousness. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you got to turn up the heat when you when you start these things. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, you the the uh, learner has surpassed the master by which I mean me. Yeah. Um, you you shocked me that one time when we were we were talking about Barbara Bush dying, and you said it was because she snorted too many quaaludes. It was not quaaludes. <laughs> it was Zannies. Okay? <laughs> that shit was funny as hell. Her getting turned Zannies, up on. Her getting turned up on lean while listening to Vaporwave and passed away like DJ Perp. <laughs> exactly. Well, a surprising amount of uh, celebrities do. You'd be really shocked about how many they celebrities get chopped just... and screwed. Huh. So, uh, uh, with us uh, today, <laughs> let's finally introduce the guest. <laughs> with us today, we have the author of Tell Me I'm Worthless, uh, which is, I believe, out now? In the UK, it is. It is available now in America. It will be available in 2023. Sorry, you have to pay. You can get it now if you're in America. There are ways. Yeah. You know, um, they're like... 
it's fine. I won't get mad at you. Um, but but if you yeah, uh, it's it's sort of properly published in America in twenty 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 three. Um, uh, but yes, the uh, the author Allison Rumfit. Hi, hello. Who's here? Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, this is like the best book I've read this year. Um, best novel. I should is say. it is it the only novel you've read this year? <laughs> it's not. No, it's not. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Just wait. <Wait-y. laughs> Let's get the hit list. What are ones that are worse? <laughs> okay. okay. This was, you don't have to name the worst. Sound... Just the names. Just who made the... Who's worse? Um, Tao Lin. Kind of an you obvious... You read another Tao Lin this year? I... I... I've been in a <laughs> You read Tao Lin this year? There's a new one. Um, Leave Society. I, I thought... <laughs> okay. I guess I, was your thought that it can't be worse than Trip? I, I thought it'd be I thought it'd be worse as an experience. <laughs> um, just because, like Trip, at least he's con- you might learn some information among all the like boring teenage drug speculation. Um, like I've been writing something that is probably never going to come out. Um, that is roughly in the same wheelhouse as what I thought Leave Society <laughs> might be about. Um, so I decided to read it, and maybe I'll work something, and maybe there'll be a critique of Leave Society in my own thing. It turns out there won't be. It turns out Leave Society is just bad, and Tallinn, <laughs> I have no idea why he's getting published. He's just a bad writer. He's just one of these like holdovers, like Jonathan Franzen or Jonathan Lefham, but he wasn't even as popular as those guys, and no one likes him. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, and at least like, Lefem has a better. couple books that are good. Um, like, not I mean, anymore, but like pretty decent. But yeah, um, he, he he like every couple of years he comes out with a new book. It's no good, and he still lives in a apartment in <laughs> Central Park or something. <sighs> Meanwhile, no, I, I agree. This this book had me stoked as fuck. I actually oh, reached yeah. out in retrospect, now that I know the US release date, um, extravagantly early to have uh uh to have an interview about the book. Um yeah, no, this 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 book was absolutely fantastic to me too. Mm. Um yeah, I, not I, really I think... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was saying not really a shock. I happened to read it around the same time that I read um uh, an early copy of Manhunt and n- not terribly similar books, but feel like they come from emotionally similar places, mm-hmm. but elaborated in, uh, especially feeling like very complimentary works, like elaborating the same experience, but from, uh, I would say yours is a more realist uh, and not always purely realist, but definitely more realist. No, there um, are spooky ghosts. There are. But I, I did too much. I did too much uh, grad stuff on spooky ghosts. I think that that's just real. But in a like a, you know, <laughs> you can't no, see. <laughs> they're more real, I think, than like a a, a zombie. I guess or like a. In terms of, I think you're. If you ask ten people whether they've seen a ghost, there's a chance that like, a couple of them will be like, yeah. I don't think te- if you ask ten people, have you seen a like testosterone zombie? That that <laughs> they'll be they'll say yes. 
probably now. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, also like the the um, I again, I went into a lot of debt to learn some of these words, the the hauntological aspect of like, not just what are ghosts literally, but like, why do ghosts emerge in literature and what do ghosts represent? That's obviously a much more pressingly real daily experience of like, mm. um, shades of either uh, uncaptured futures washing back at us, or um, unresolved pasts or unresolved traumas um, passing forward so that the present never gets to be itself. It gets to be anticipated futures that won't exist or can't exist and unrealized pasts that, and that obviously is super present in your book. And that that's the part where yeah. I'm like, yo, I'm fucking riveted. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think I've said before, like, um, obviously not on this podcast because we're just recording it now, but <laughs> this feels like, like there's obviously a lot to this book that I have no, personal experience of it's about being a woman generally either a trans or cis woman and i'm never going to experience those things i hypothetically could experience being a trans woman but i think i would have but never mind i'm gonna that egg can crack at any moment <laughs> that's yeah. what i've learned <laughs> but um but it feels like i could have written this if I was better at writing and smarter and uh, just generally better at doing art, could have written much, much more than any other book that I've... And that's not like a... And there's certainly books I've read uh, that I've thought, this is amazing, but it's clearly from someone who's totally unlike me in any way. But yeah, there just feels... like a, there's feels like a lot of like i've been um i, I think I, that, uh, I don't know that i don't know if that's a particularly useful uh <laughs> thing the reasons for that are, are likely that i think we probably have fairly similar uh, cultural touchstones i would imagine oh yeah well, like, when... i think we have a similar taste in books and films and mm -hmm. so it probably just by virtue of that, like, uh, uh, we li we listen to the same podcast and probably have get get mad at the same sort of particular kinds of Britishisms. Um, mm. So I think probably when the the book is coming out of of my headspace when I'm doing that, it's probably why. Like I imagine there there will be people who I'm there will be a, a trans women who are reading it who who may be like far more different from me in other in other respects like an american trans woman or whatever and i wonder if they would feel the same um i don't know well i i think yeah, that, I, so uh, uh you keep going yeah i mean a, a lot of people I've, who i've seen really vibing with this are yeah they're, uh, they're people like um tom wyman who is former guest of this show he mm -hmm. wrote the best non-fiction book i've read this year and he wrote a really good uh, story about it for Gorka. Um, Sean McCarthy, another guest of this show. Um, like, yeah, it's, all, it's all people who have been on this show. It's like our extended <laughs> family just, just really likes this book. Um, so, yeah, I think culturally you've just hit on, like, um, overeducated, underemployed uh, white people in Britain. Um, 
So, Maybe so not the was, only um, audience I was hoping to reach. But, um. Well, I can, I can I can speak to another audience because I've never even been to Britain, um, where before I was the American outgrowth of the show. Now the show is full of freedom. Um, uh, ideally, whoever's editing that, maybe it's me. Put a put in a. a a bald eagle cry behind that, please. And a billowing, a billowing American flag and fireworks. Well, I was um, going to edit this. How are you, yeah, okay. you going to yeah, do, so do a that. billowing American flag? Audit, Sonically. Uh, you find Sonically. the most, you find freedom sound and you uh, put that in there. It's just and sort it, of it, a sheet of material just going. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah, Americans will know the sound of the billowing flag. We 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 look at that flag at any moment. Um, really, drop of a hat kind of thing. Normally, it's really disrespectful to the seriousness of the occasion around it, but we still do it um, pathologically. Uh, but I bring that up. Um, not not the America stuff. I bring up that I'm American with the fact that I also resonated really strongly with this book. Um, obviously, again. I have even less materially in common with on paper where the experience would be coming from. Uh, I'm not a woman. I'm not, um, I'm not like 100% cis, but I'm nowhere near close enough to, to transness for that to really um, be an overlapping thing. Uh, again, cannot emphasize how not British I am. Can't, that really can't be underscored, but that's because I think like, um, how was to put it? When I'm reading the works of uh, Guy de Maupassant, uh, I'm not French, and I was born centuries after that guy died. Um, but he writes well enough because he's writing from the emotional, experiential core of of what he's elaborating on. So um, I think sometimes we get fixated a lot on do we contain these moat-like, uh, almost like factoid elements of identity rather than the experiential components of identity. And you actually do a really wonderful job throughout the book of laying bare that emotional core of the experiences. So it, um, to, to tie back to, to, you know, the greatest work of all time, death metal. Um, it's like the difference between listening to like a random, uh, random contemporary OSDM record versus like an ulcerate record where someone who doesn't even necessarily know why people listen to death metal can hear ulcerate play and go oh there's some very raw emotions at work here and then you can you can use that to elaborate to someone like oh this is actually what people who love this thing see all the time it's just it's more um more legible in this in this format that's why like it's not really surprising to me that your book is getting a lot of good press from all these different places Obviously, uh, Gareth said the more like like jokey version of that, but it's more that you've written in a way that makes it clearly resonant outside of what on paper would be like the clear like um, identity overlap for the book. Yeah, I mean, I I'm I'm glad it is. The, I guess my my big anxiety with the book is, and it's really only something that we can see going forward, is whether it's too much. Whether it's too contemporary in a way that that it will sort of feel outdated quite quite quickly, and it might well. Um, and I'm sort of keeping that in mind when writing the second book that I maybe need to have a wider uh, um, sort of wider view in mind. But I think I guess it's it's unusual 
for a book, I think, to be so of a moment and to get a, a sort of a wide readership, I think it, that's partly the, the sort of the good thing about UK um, indie presses is that you can go through the whole process of, of publishing quite fast enough that you can have a, a novel with um, contemporary references that doesn't immediately feel out of date. Um, like, I didn't really reference COVID at all because it didn't feel, I think there's maybe one sort of vague reference to it, but th there are other references to contemporary headlines and contemporary occurrences that I was, I was happy to get in there. Um, I just, I wonder if that's why it feels so imminent to people um, that it does. It's a, a fictional work that um, encompasses um, what they themselves are sort of mad about online. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, just from my own experience of like being around publishers, yeah, they do always want like timeless stuff and they are very they're very reticent about having any sort of popular culture or any reference to contemporary stuff in books yeah it, it's been a it's a weird thing and luckily yeah there are indie presses who will actually let that stuff through but i i, I mean i think it's um it's just the case that if you're gonna write a book in the modern world around like millennial or i guess mm. these guys are probably boomers might might be but um young well, people I'm technically a zoomer so oh okay well, but i think that alice alice and Illa is i have no idea about that um sorry we we, we don't <laughs> we have nothing against you it's just yeah we don't kill the interview cover... <laughs> craig go away now <laughs> Illa, Illa and alice are a little are a little older than me um so i would i would say they they're very young yeah. anyway yeah, and they're um yeah, and people who are Zoomers and millennials are just like suffused in popular culture and memes and stuff like twenty four seven. You can't honestly talk about their lives without referencing that. It would just it would come off much stranger to have someone like like in um gonna do discourse now. Um fucking what's her name? Irish writer, everyone hates her. Um, sells Sally more Rooney? books. Sally Rooney, yes. Like, gonna, wait, I, mean, I, I really like Sally. I was like, everyone hates um, Sally Rooney. Is this what? What did she yeah, do? Wanna... <laughs> I think I think that there was a turn around her this year with the with the new novel, which I've actually you're, read. You're right. Yeah, um, yeah. It actually, yeah. And I, I think the the Palestine thing did a lot of good for her reputation as well. Mm. But um, yeah, her, her stuff is always like very like the young people in that never. Seem like real young people. They don't. They're always. They don't really talk, and um, they don't talk like people do. They don't. Uh, they're not as online as people generally are. Even when they're sending, e they're like conducting a whole book via email. Mm. They don't seem like they're online in the same way that the people I talk to every day are. Not and not just like people on left Twitter. I mean, like like people in real life as well like it it's normal to be online and to be kind of constantly spitting out popular culture references nowadays so i, yeah, I mean so, 
I, I think yeah. I think we get hung up sometimes on the specific shape of what pop culture looks like at any given moment, especially when it's our pop culture and then the pop culture that follows us. That's where um the boomerization of the mind happens, where you go the way that you engage with pop culture in the normal way is ultimately my generational format. And when I witness a new generation, they're hyper fixated when if you go back um Thomas Pinchon's writing frequently about television and radio, and you have, you know, all, all these great older turn of the century novels writing about um, like early film. I'm reading um, Virginia Woolf's debut right now, um, set written in like 1904 or something. And she's talking a lot about going to the movies and how everyone's obsessed with movies and young people are so weird because they don't read the newspaper. They go to the movies. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that, that general mode maybe gives it a time and place, but I don't think necessarily dates it. And I think this is, this is more a broader social critique. I think the kinds of people that read, works that take a definite time and place as being dated have a really strange view of history and the production of culture that they view culture as this like atemporal force that is like degraded when it enters into the um the rational rubric of like britain 2020s um as opposed to like well you know that's that's backwards like you don't get culture without that other stuff first so I, I wasn't really bothered by it at all, because, again, that seemed, especially the way that you handled those things, they weren't cultural signifiers for their own sake. It didn't feel like you were like, let me include my hot list of memes. It felt more like you had a feeling or a sensation that you wanted to pull out of. And so you're you're pointing at these things as a quick referent to to um, either jump off of or to encapsulate the thing that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I'd hope it's not a, like, I'm trying to think of, like, you know, in the Black Panther film, um, there's, like, a, a what are those joke? Um, what, I, I don't, okay. I don't know the exact uh, moment that you're talking about, but the idea of that yeah. being in Black Panther Back in does. The day, there was a meme that was, like, what are those when someone's wearing a weird shoe? Um, oh. And oh. then, and then in, in the Black Panther film, they did a, a, a joke where someone said that. And it it was already it was just a weird moment because that was already like a quite an old meme at that point. And if you watch it now, which I mean, it doesn't really. Marvel films don't hold up to rewatches. They don't hold up to watch. If you watch it, it's it's so bizarre that there was just this sort of random attempt at a meme in the middle of the film. Um, I would I would hope that that if there are I don't know, references to to online culture. I would say I'm a little I don't I don't necessarily think that pop culture exists anymore in in the way it used to, just because um we're 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 both like at once so fragmented and then also so glued together. Like and Marvel films are a good a good way of thinking about that. Like pop culture 20 years ago was a thing that I think you could sort of conceivably invest in. Um, whereas now it's, it's almost a chore. Um, so I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry. That was just a random aside that occurred to me. We do random asides here. Like, like I, the, I, the pop culture of 20 years ago, which was just like, Oh, like 
we'll talk about Buffy and we'll re- like reference Buffy or whatever, or we'll reference um whatever other show is on on television, whatever other films are, are sort of popular but are, are somewhat niche, perhaps compared to now where it's just sort of everything. Um, yeah, and and I, I think that... we we wind up seeing that um in say the music world from about uh the mid the mid 80s um up to especially when the communications or the like uh the broadcast act of 96 hit and you get clear channel and and their equivalents across the globe buying up these things Mm -hmm. and homogenizing what we would consider popular music and how that really only started to be blasted apart in the past 10 years or so where you talk to any given teen and and this isn't even to just say like adults even but the Mm most the people you'd consider to be most beholden to culture because they have no power to leverage the production of culture. Even they will be like, I've never heard of these three people that have a top 10 song, but I've heard of these other ones Um, in a way that film is obviously regressing right now because that's tending towards monopolization, but in in a way that's uh, like visibly unsustainable, it's going to be buck wild when the film world bottoms out. Um, American blockbusters coming out next year. <laughs> oh, that image has gone around. Yeah, I, uh, oh, that is so painful. I'm see. Some people haven't gone all the way through the wormhole. I'm very. I'm like. I'm like. Humanity's dead in like four years anyway. So whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> give me. Give me. Give me some goober ass laughs. Um, most like, of those movies look like horseshit. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They're hey, Avatar two. <laughs> Avatar two might be good. Um. But I, I've, I've kind of come around on Avatar. I'm, I'm almost there. It, it's a lot more revolutionary than uh, most people think. It's kind of yeah. about how it's good to shoot colonialists. Yeah, me um, and a friend, like, over, a, I don't know, a year or two ago, decided to try and start a podcast where we only talked about Avatar. Um <laughs> Okay. Well, partly because the the sort of joke of it was, you get like so many fan fan podcasts of Star Wars or or Star Trek or like any any other sort of sci fi, um, action property, um, but you don't get a fa- you, there, there aren't fan podcasts about Avatar really just because it's so, it's such a weird object. Um, and yeah. there's all those jokes about like, oh, no one can name a single line from Avatar. I can name a line from Avatar. Um, because I say you are like a baby making noise a lot, which is from Avatar. But um, <laughs> it's just a weird line. Yeah, I, I, I always try and work in a you know, eat your ass for jujubes. Uh, I just try and work that into normal conversation anytime I can, like in, in meetings. Uh, but it is, work. It's such a bizarre object where it's like this behemoth of a film coming in sort of the last grasp when you could really get away with an original film. Um, uh, costing that much money, um, uh, made by a sort of old, real old guard at this point, um, blockbuster maker, and it's also, yeah, about colonialism, and it's really clumsily about colonialism. <laughs> like it's it's obviously like racist in a lot of ways, and it's definitely a white guy trying to talk about colonialism. Yeah, like and, and obviously the memes was like, oh, it starts with wolves, but it's not just starts with wolves. It's also the word for world is forest and dune and like a hundred other possible properties. 
Um, but it's th- there's something about it when you watch it now where you're just like, this isn't. No one would make this now, which is yeah. makes me curious about the the potent- possibility of what a an Avatar two looks like there's, in a year where every other film is is called like Marvel's secret. There's, um, Guardian. There's this really beautiful, like, liminal aspect of the film. Obviously, we've seen this overuse of, of the term or liminal spaces and lim- liminal objects and things like that, and hyperliminality and hypoliminality and all that. But it, it's used as a point of critique for Avatar that it was this fucking monumental movie that barely anyone can remember. But there's something weirdly beautiful about that to me because Ooh, it's like yeah. it came out of nowhere swept over the entire fucking planet we all and then it just it's gone and then it's like it's slowly returning like this half remembered dream but that everyone experienced it quite seriously it reminds me uh, it reminds me of like a contemporary zardoz where it's this like I, I I say that lovingly zardoz is a fucking holy text I keep it inside of a Peter Gabriel DVD case um not kidding uh that's that's praise for anyone who doesn't know how to parse that. Peter Gabriel is fantastic. Just in case, <laughs> in case you were wondering, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, but like, it has this like beautiful because you have the it's the guy who made Deliverance, and then the movie right after Zardoz was Excalibur. So it's these two fucking masterpieces mm. that everyone loves, and in the middle is this like, what the fuck is he doing right now? Um. And it it feels like James. This was James Cameron's Zardoz, and for whack asses and squares, that's a bad thing because they're like, oh, it's artistically masturbatory. It's blah, blah, blah. but on a certain end, that's exactly what we look to people like that for. Like it was him giving an absolute humongous shit about something no one else, especially in that space, seemed to really care about, and he he threw all of his money behind this. The dog invented current 3D film technology for that movie. Every 3D movie you've seen since Avatar uses that tech. And he went away and 3D died. And I, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I imagine that Avatar 2 would be in 3D. I don't know if it is. Because 3D just doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. Like, <laughs> Avatar, 3D was almost like it only existed for the possibility of Avatar <laughs> to happen. And, and then because it because it's outside of Avatar, it's kind of a useless. Like I can think of maybe two or three films that I've seen in three D where the three D. Yeah, like, it's just like it's like obligatory in Marvel films, but you, they don't use it. They don't. It's not. Do they even it, project it in three? I don't think they do in, at my local. Uh, like all the big Marvel films have been in three D. I think they have. I don't. I don't. I, think I legitimately it's don't know. It's just, yeah. It, well, that's because you you were sitting there with, with your three D glasses on, and it made zero difference whether this film was in three D or not. It would have made if there's oh, Eternals was that, that was a I don't know why I watched it. <laughs> I shouldn't have watched it. it was yeah, a I, I, I have no oh. idea why I've watched any of the Marvel films. They've been a huge waste of my time. I, I finally given up. I finally said on the second episode of Loki for some reason, I said I'm done with all of this. <laughs> I don't, you, I don't like, care that this Loki, was something so you could, I liked when I was 15. You could watch any given bad Doctor Who like, 
series, and it'd probably be giving you about the same thing as Loki. Yeah. Um, just with slightly more char- just would be slightly more charming because the effects are worse. Um, mm, yeah, and well, there's until, less until story the whole, dialogue. Until the Moffat stuff, but the Disney's oh, yeah. Disney's frustrating for exactly this like suddenly made even though on Earth being uh, and you're still like. No, it's suddenly it's not hitting anymore. And someone's like, how is that not hitting? You're like, I don't know. He's so bad at his job that he can take this and make me not like it. I don't know what to tell you. Like, yeah, there's something especially. Uh, so I I normally am not a big fan of the sort of mode of especially very online film criticism or television criticism where they take like a single still image from a work that's clearly in production. They're like, the whole movie is bad because I saw one picture. Because, like, for instance, Dune fucking banged. Dune banged. Was, and it I banged hard. Dune. Yeah. Um, Shockingly, or unshockingly, uh, it leaned more into Villanovu's strengths of being really good with the numinous and really good with this, like, very reverent um iconography and sense of like glacial very theologically driven pacing I'm like okay that fits the skill set a lot better but if you saw just the still image it didn't look like desert mothers and desert fathers you, you know in monastic worship in mm. the desert it looked like gray horse shit so at first i was like maybe the eternals is just <laughs> getting done dirty by a still image but inside i'm like i have so i have a bunch of bookshelves in my house and I have a bunch of different kinds of books on him. I have a lot of Jack Kirby on my shelf because as much as people can talk their weird whack shit about cape shit, which is a term that I think is frankly more fucking annoying than it is helpful. Even though I'll agree with a lot of the critiques that get tied to it, it denigrates often a lot of times work like from that of Jack Kirby. And I'm like, okay, honest to God, you're probably not as good as Jack Kirby was at what he did. So like maybe Slow your roll just a little bit, maybe. So I'm looking at the Eternals on the page, and I'm not sure if you've ever, you know, looked at it, dear reader, but you can Google it. And that shit's colorful as fuck. It's like, it's straight up like you chewed up and threw up a lot of crayons. Like you ate an entire box, and it makes you sick because that's so much wax, and that's not food. And so you throw up, and then you're looking at that, and it's just hyper colorful. And then I look up at the screen, and it's, fucking gray and i'm like who did this <laughs> the film takes place on multiple gray beaches it's, it's really kind of wonderful um i haven't but, seen that uh, level well yeah don't, don't watch i think um that there was something that came oh i think i think i was then thinking about cape shit and then i was like alan moore we should talk about alan moore um uh, I'll, I'll always talk about Alan Moore. Let's Literally, the last thing that we... So, uh, peek behind the curtain. The last thing that we were working on before life stuff happened, Gareth needed to take um, a hiatus just to... We all... right, We're all in our 30s doing the show, and life shit happens when you're in your 30s. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, but we were working on a long-form project on, on Promethea, and then it just... It became like, okay, no, it was probably... This is, it'll be better forever. And if so, uh, to say that Alan Moore is a friend of the show, um, not, not like, not like when we say racists are friends of the show. 
That's everyone's a friend. To differentiate the, the term, the term friend of the show means two completely different things. One is person that I hate, and the other one is person that I admire. And it's good to use the same phrase for both of those things. It's it's usually I'm I'm like I have like friends who know Alan Moore, which always weirds what me out. What the fuck? Like, imagine just like get him to come I mean, on this show. I want it so bad. <laughs> I hate to say it, I he, I, I, I don't think he was. <laughs> I don't think he owns I a computer. He to generally be hates talking about his work. Um, mm, okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pissed off. He did an he did an interview in Chapo Trap House, but he won't come on this show where we actually right? like him. <laughs> I'm sure those guys do like him. That that interview. I don't really listen to Chapo, but that was a really lovingly done interview. That that was that was a really really good interview. Yeah, it was a good episode. I recently read Neonomicon, which is I think is not a work, not a more work that I I really hear talked about much. Sort of the only way I'd heard it talked about was that it featured like a a graphic sexual assault um which it does several yeah we really like the sort of the entire work but i i it was what surprised what surprised me about it is just how amazing it like it really blew me away it's probably it's one of the best things i've read this year um but i was like if if this is sort of considered a minor and more work that's Mm. you have to sort of respect a guy that that what is considered a minor work is is such a perfect piece of art. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's you go on. Not to inflate your ego or anything, but I got a lot of Alan Moore vibes from your work. I mean, specifically I, Jerusalem. Well, this, is, I haven't read Jerusalem. <laughs> I read like the first twenty-five pages and was like, "This is amazing." I'm going to read the rest, and then I um, didn't. No, seriously, but it, I it, will. It, it um, um it does yeah it does it is a kind of a lot like tell me i'm worthless it, it, it's, it's um i mean yours has a set story it's about a, characters and things happening to them whereas jerusalem is about a, a town and throughout mm. the whole of history it, it but it does the same it has some similar moves to your own work which is things like the, the times uh skipping where your own thing will go between the modern day and the history of the house um you mix up like going from very realist like straight up prose to more poetic um almost stream of consciousness stuff um yeah it, honestly uh, yeah do check out jerusalem it, it's not only brilliant it is like it's brilliant in the same way your your own stuff is brilliant um yeah so. allison uh t- told me when she got uh jerusalem uh and uh, that yeah was... i proceeded to like no but you know, <laughs> I, I still haven't even picked it up. I'm, I, uh, it's great. It's brilliant. My, well, no, I, I, I'm literally 100% certain it is. I have every single thing that he's published in here. Like, I have all of the like side comics that he did with Eddie Campbell outside of From Hell, like the ones that are the comic adaptations of oh. the uh, theater work and stuff like that. Um, fucking love Alan Moore. Fucking love that guy. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I I didn't make that same kind of connection uh, that you did, um, Gareth. Not specifically to Jerusalem, but obviously Alan Moore has a lot of a lot of works in that same mode. Like From Hell is. I was just going to say the, From Hell is another one that could be read very 
close to this. Yeah, and I, that that ties into the the thing that I most wanted to praise you about, which is not necessarily just when I, when we say emotional rawness, I don't mean that it's like emotionally difficult to get through. Although that it, there are moments of that in this, and that's that's a component of it. I mean raw in the sense that you don't have, um, you don't have barriers between the emotional core of this work and the yeah. prose of the work. Some things benefit from being a little bit more contorted to like draw a reader in and break things down, and or you know it can fit in certain certain ways this is a lot more um i don't want to use the word confrontational because that has connotations at least for me of um especially as i get older frankly like slightly worse writers who don't know how to find the beauty and the power in the thing they're doing so they try to get by with just brute force which especially as you get older you kind of you're like most of these people aren't kathy acker and i can't I can't, she's one of those writers where the more people you read trying to be like her, the more you're like, I need everyone to stop. I need people to stop reading Kathy Acker until they get a handle on. Um, it's more that- Surely no one would cast Kathy Acker as themselves and then write through some sort of bastardized version of Kathy Acker. No one would ever do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But that um, there's a callback to a previous episode of this show, by the way. Anyway, Crudo years ago, but um, <laughs> but yeah, the, worst book the, I've ever read. That you have uh, this really really wonderful um sense of prosaic. Like you wrote the fuck out of this book. Is <laughs> like I'm trying to think of a fancy way to say it because I I spent too much money learning all my fancy book words, but. Like the way that you'll transition between those realist moments, more historically grounded moments, more, more poetic moments, moments interior and exterior to a character, moments connecting to a broader cultural web and like sociological web versus like a purely psychological one. It's like that's the kind of multifacetedness that I think most writers want to have in their work because it it's the whole point of like uh, plot doesn't tell us why we should give a shit. And this is a book where I feel very comfortable not really talking about the plot at all because the why we should give a shit is so present and numinous at all moments of, of the text. And I'm like, yo, yo, just... I spent a lot of time reading bad books. It was a huge fucking relief to be like, this book is good front to back. What the fuck? Like... Yeah. yeah and, and, and it's like, you could have written this book totally realist um you know no um no trips to the past to find out the house's history um just straight ahead drama and it, it would still be it would work like that um but yeah you doing those things that can only be done in fiction kind of like how alan moore talks about how he wrote watchman as a comic it's not like a he wanted to do a movie but didn't have no one would give him a camera, so he wrote a comic book as a consolation prize. He wrote a comics comic. And this is like a book's book. This is like a book doing the book things the books do. Um, yeah, which is just like stunning for one, a first novel, and one that you like together when you were bored. <laughs> yeah, that makes me feel so bad. When I say Every now and again, I'm like, bored. Allison, fuck you. Like, <laughs> when I say I was bored, that, that, maybe um diminishes what i was feeling which was like 
I, I, I was sort of in the second half of my master's. I was like extremely depressed in my master's. I'd had a huge fallout with um, some of the people running it. I didn't really want to be doing it, but I also was sort of struck with such malaise. I couldn't bring myself to drop out. COVID had happened and I was, you know, isolated. At first, in, I was lodging, which is not a, um, a situation where you want to be um, isolated generally. Um, you don't want to be isolated in someone else's house, which is what that was. Um, and then I managed to get home safely and then I was isolated there in a, in a sort of different fucked up um, situation of being in, in my childhood bedroom where I'd, I'd gone through all of this turmoil when I was younger, obviously. And now I was back here feeling like I... Older, but feeling like I hadn't really advanced in a lot. Like, I don't know, Evangelion, you cannot advance. Um, and and I was, it was in that headspace. So it was more than just boredom. It was like a, a, a boredom that just seeped into the soul. Um... And a real sort of dissatisfaction with what I'd spent all of my time doing, which was was academia. And then I was like, well, what's the point in academia? Why did I do this? Like, I hate I hate the people that run my my module. I hate the people that run my uni. Um, I sort of in the I I got embroiled in the process of writing the book where I ended up tweeting about a professor at Sussex who was a sort of known creep, and then journalists from the sun turned up at my house well my parents house and i was like how the hell did they get my parents address like so so this was when i say bored it's it's maybe an easy um way of uh encompassing all of those emotions so i think that might explain why the book is the way that it is it does. Um, it does and the, i was being facetious from the sun were turning up outside my house yeah. <laughs> and I mean, just for that, Americans, like the sun is one of the worst. There are a lot of very, very bad British <laughs> newspapers, and the sun is one of the very worst. Mm. Um, look up. It's like if um, you somehow had Hillsborough. the New York Post and uh, a tabloid, like become yeah. and Fox News become one thing. Mm. You guys live it's on yeah, a fucked up island. And also, like, America's bad. Really you guys live on a fucked up island. Yeah, oh, we yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> about it, you may have heard of it. It's called uh, "Tell Me You're Worthless." It's quite good. Yeah, um, I um, there's, yeah, I mean, you've described really the quintessential, and not when I say the quintessential, um, sorry, um, can... should we do? Should we do music now? Oh yeah, fuck it. Yeah, sure. Let's do. Sorry, we haven't talked about. Yeah, I, I, I run a really tight ship when I was in charge of this. I, I That's right. Have music down right there i don't, I don't do your three-hour episodes we're talking about prog rock okay look <laughs> we do, we do... Prog, rate of prog rock episodes. <laughs> terrible for seo to do such long episodes but that's none of my business <laughs> <laughs> so allison as as someone who has demonstrably good musical taste we have um done the rare act of allowing you to pick some music so introduce the the first act. Oh gosh, what was the? Oh, I remember who it was. Um, so yeah, I I was I asked some friends I think who some good what what was like happening I think in UK, um, 
in UK music, and I was recommended Pupil Slicer. Um, oh, brilliant. And great, great band, I great. listen to them, and th- they're great. Um, <laughs> I don't really know. I'm not. I don't know anything about music, so I can't really put into words what's great about them. Um, I don't think I could tell you what genre of music they are. Um, so I'll leave Sounds that like Dillinger Escape Plan. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah there's, there's this, no, there's this sound that that happens in uh, their song "Wounds Upon My Skin." That's like a a, a slide, or I guess a slide along the string of the guitar, and it's so good and so well placed in the in the song that I would just sort of skip back to, to the beginning of the song just to hear it a few times, and then I'll continue with the song. Um, it rules. I love it. <laughs> yeah, People's Sight are, are absolutely amazing. Um, if you like early Dillinger Escape Plan, then they are... They're, they're like that, but they've got a kind of death metal-y, kind of scronky, weird, ulcerate vibe. Yeah, they're, um, they're, it's it's like Screamo is the bass, and then all these other different... There's like grindcore, death metal, and there's like mathcore, and just all these other things stacked on top as he's flavor on. Fucking great band. Yeah. So, should we do Wounds Upon Our, uh, on our Skin? Should we hear yeah. this like, incredible slide? Yeah, okay. just enjoy the slide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just loop it. Just keep playing mm. the slide yeah, over and edit over. Edit out the salacious thing that I did and just put that slide over it. <laughs> <laughs> like an edit sound. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, here's Pupil Slicer.
Barrel giving you spice. Edit it uh, out your arm. What? The, the the blurry thing on Alison's camera edits out her arm. Yeah. So, nice. yeah, so your arm becomes a ghost <laughs> if you go over here. Remain. No. That's wild. It doesn't. That's really. It, th it, it, it wages war on portions of your body. That's, that's really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Oh, mine doesn't do that. Not yeah, we should leave leave that in so that way people listening they have no idea. <laughs> Just like I'm mad that during I haven't I've yet to make the noise episode that I kept saying that I was going to do once I took control of just like three hours of just redoing uh amplification, compression, and uh distortion over and over and reverb until it's just like <laughs> For three hours. Actually, it would be I nice. Some podcasts that basically feel like that. So I, I love to challenge the listener because I don't don't like them. Don't just know. I want no... <laughs> to a sort of a, a sort of open mic that my friend runs, um, and and a a sort of friend turned up, um, and did a performance arts art piece that lasted about twenty minutes. And it was just him screaming into a microphone and then sort of re doing reverb stuff and just sort of screaming over and over the word Wonga. Um, and it got like, louder like, and louder and more and more thing? And it went on for 20 minutes. <laughs> that rules. That sounds yeah. hype. Involving Wonga, the... the loans company uh that week which was the sort of the reason for the piece but i <laughs> it was it was <laughs> conceptually great but quite hard to listen to um, that that describes what... a lot of things that i like um <laughs> it, was, it was like in a face describes lagged oh that's right <laughs> damn <laughs> barely roasted that's just true <laughs> Right. Are, uh, we, so are we back now, or are we yeah, back? We are. Yeah, oh, yeah, we'll so, be back. So, we're back. Okay. So you, we'll start talking, we're back. So you were, you were describing before the, the conditions that created the novel, and what, what you described, uh, you, you probably know this, um, are not only like, when I say the quintessential birthing ground for um, haunted house novels, I mean also like historically, like the people who wrote them, the, the novels that we consider like the biggest works in the genre, typically are born around that same that same particular type of malaise where we can experience most uh most concretely like as people first not as authors um sort of the hauntological aspect of the future we wanted seeming seemingly getting derailed but it's still achingly present in our day-to-day -day lives like we aren't we haven't escaped from enmeshment with it. So we're confronted day to day with this future. We maybe don't want and maybe won't happen, but we're also ensconced in the settings of childhood or of youth that we've returned to. So we have these like multiple confrontational states, neither of which are, are the present condition. And so the process of the mind looping from present to future, to distant past to present in this like, constant loop trying to find some kind of path forward which is obviously very present in the book is like the that's that's where we get things like um uh we have always lived in the castle which 
debate me coward that's a haunted house novel even though they're all alive um oh, it's, it's 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 a haunted house origin story i mean that yeah. feels like a sort of very silly way of putting it but it, it is it's a story about how you get a haunted house yeah and, and obviously and it, shirley jackson when writing that was you know like suffering from really sort of severe I mean, she was like scared of going outside, right? Like she just like she was addicted to painkillers, I think. And it, uh, it's hard not to read something like the Bell Jar as as a kind of permutation of a haunted house novel, even mm. though again, there's no literal ghosts, but the same the same psychological impetus for that story is in any given good haunted house novel because it's it's about this raw emotionality that can't be processed rationally. It, it, like it it because our real day-to-day experience isn't giving a space for this to seek any kind of, of real resolution or forward motion. It's only through these uh, contracted, um, like almost contrived pathways. Can we get any kind of, uh, yeah. So uh, the word, the word boredom, I think is normally uh, replaced with like ennui or malaise or some other uh, fancy, uh, but to, to technically they all do, they are a kind of boredom. It's just like mm. if boredom was evil. <laughs> which, which is a very like British uh, feeling. It, it, mm. It's maybe the quintessential British feeling. It's so, um, I know there's a really good point, but I, to make it, I would have to mention the person we're not allowed to mention. So I'm not going to mention it, but believe <laughs> me, I have a good point here. Words. Yeah. There is a I certain can... um, musician. That's uh, actually no. I can I can make this about the the, the music, the, like indie music for the eighties. Mm. A, a lot of that is about boredom. Yeah, like a huge amount of that is about being bored, being in these shitty estates, like the one I'm currently in. Um, feeling like all the good times were behind you, but those good times weren't actually good. Um, feeling like there's this like authentic past you can never go back to. Which are very like almost verging on kind of fascist thoughts, hence why mm. certain yeah, members of yeah, that. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny how that leaks in there. It's almost as though Allison knew that. It's crazy how, how these, um, yeah, how how the quintessential British feeling is also one that is so tied up with yeah, just plain old. 1930s armbands fascism i mean it's mm. the same reason why and this is again uh, admittedly more than me saying like dumbass clown shit at the start of this perhaps a more actual hot take this is why we tend to see a lot of reactionaries birthed out of the punk movement like we see a lot of the first wave punk people not all of them you know some of them like members of velvet underground certain of them became very reactionary but other ones obviously stayed um on top of their shit more or less chasing but, after trans women yeah uh then we uh we eventually get people like johnny rotten who it, regardless of the the bullshit of like we're the sex pistols ever punk which is a dumb a dumb revisionist argument that's done to try to absolve punk of something they consider embarrassing rather than to mm. seriously argue they had no place or impact in that world which is a stupid a historical argument uh, mm-hmm. And if you argue out of shame and embarrassment instead of uh, discipline, I don't respect you. Um, 
But we wind up seeing that a lot because you see the birthplace of punk and in a lot of ways, like the birthplace of metal via Black Sabbath is that same kind of corrosive boredom. Like when boredom is extended to a certain point where it becomes psychologically torturous and it bursts out in a certain way. And if you're a decent person, um, you grasp onto that energy and adulthood and maturity is the process of committing that energy to something like joining an organization. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The boring version is joining an organization or like committing to your family, your community, your, you know, any number of things, joining a union, all these good kind of traditional lefty things. Um, The bad version obviously is you let this um, pining for an escaped past or things like that start warping you this is also where we wind up seeing shockingly it's almost as though this is in the book on purpose um the rise of the rise of transphobia within feminist movements is precisely the same um angst that winds up inverting itself over time where it's like it's a very real very totally understandable angst about being a woman in a patriarchal world that's incredibly violent Mm -hmm. but that over time recalcifies into uh the inability to see the inability to see oneself as anything other than a victim in this one system rather than connected to all of these other systems as well yeah the, the thing that always strikes me around about tufts is is that they have such a astonishingly depressing view of what what um womanhood is <laughs> And and if they're a lesbian turf, they have such a depressing view of what a lesbian is. But it's just that their, their view of womanhood is that it's an entire sort of it's basically a time loop of of just violence, where you're just stuck in this repeating like wheel of just experiencing violence from every angle. Um, and it's so I cannot imagine. I mean, but, but I can't imagine how you get there, right? I, I I can imagine how you end up with, with that being your view, viewpoint. What I can't imagine exactly is what it would feel like 24-7 to be to have that as, as your view of what what your um position in the world is. Um I mean I, I tried a little with Villa, but obviously Illa is in in Tell Me and Worthless is intentionally quite apart from the other um sort of turfs um because I think Illa is looking at them and thinking, like, none of you have actually experienced what you're claiming to be scared of, but, but I, I have experienced it. Um, but it is, it's just, I mean, I, I've, I try not to look too much at Tashit anymore. I used to look at it too much um, as I guess almost a, like a form of self harm, and it to just and it would just sort of tear me apart. Just like imagining the internal lives of these people, um, it's just yeah. Like you, but I I think the the thing with Tarsus is that I don't think they are they're not opining for a a sort of lost better world that didn't actually exist. I I, I don't. If they are, I guess it's the the second wave. But the second wave doesn't 
like they're not really doing any of the things that the second wave did like they're not engaging in the same types of politics you know for for all of the second waves many many problems like that they were quite a lot of them were communists right um and like turfs in general are, are not communists um and... Well, I, I was looping them in more from the 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 dual angle of both a lost a lost past, but also a sense yeah. of a lost future. That for them, they they build this teleology, and it's sort of the the problem of a lot of um, strongly teleological thinking. That they build this teleology of this is what liberation looks like, and then some new vector comes in and goes, well, what if we formulated the the question, what is a woman wrong? And maybe there there are more angles here and more. Like any any person who's not fucking daft would read that as like, oh, that opens up more options for what liberation can look like because this mm-hmm. is giving us more more leverage, more tools. And they instead read it as like, this project I've been building towards is going to crumble like sand beneath me. And despite the fact that everyone around them is like, well, we can build an even better thing that like it will be even better even for you that it becomes... Which I think is part of what leads them to uh, eventually align themselves with fascist types, as as we do often see in the real world. Because mm. the reason why fascists opine for a lost past is because they project it into the future they want to give their children. That's why the 14 words gestures backwards to the perfect white yeah. world, but then forward immediately to for a future for white children and things like that. So once they get that, we've both lost the future that we both want and the same people took it from us. It's very easy for them to sit together because while, while anyone who's not fucking stupid realizes that the whole, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is not actually a very good way to build proper, like uh, political factions. You're going to get a lot of people who, um, are going to have very, very different, often completely contrasting ideas. Uh, you know, we wind up seeing that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is there, those are things that your book uh, was I, making I mean, my brain bounce off of when we see the same kind of thing on the well, the allegedly the left with these kind of class reductionist uh, leftists who have the same kind of thing. But we had this perfect plan. To then all the um, blue-haired SJWs came along and ruined it, and now it's all about them, and it's not about us, and it's supposed to be about us, and we're the protagonists of history. And um, then they end up having bizarre takes about the professional managerial class, which is everyone who isn't them. And um, <laughs> then they end up just being fascists again, mm. which is the kind of the end up of this trajectory. It's sort of like crabs in evolution right we we just keep inventing fascism again um <laughs> i guess the, the the difference is that unlike with crabs we do know why like it's easy to see it's just it, it no, can I mean, fill it, <laughs> yeah it 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 fills a hole for a lot of people and it's it, it's it's a good answer if if your whole thing is everything is about me which is what mm. the the turfs and the class reductionists and the, I don't know, Nazis in 1930s Vienna all had in common, which is people, uh, me and the people who are like me are the protagonists. We're supposed to be the ones doing everything. 
we defeat Voldemort at the end of the story. Therefore, <laughs> if anyone else says they're part of this, then they are not, and they are a ruin in the story for everyone else. I see what you did there with the Voldemort thing. Worthless, I guess. <laughs> I, I think a thing that I've I was really anxious about, and which I'm not really sure what the response has been, is is stuff relating to Alice as a character. Um, like, I mean, that's what Alice is as well, especially later on in the novel, when you when when the reader is sort of given access to to parts of her and thoughts that she maybe hasn't allowed the reader to see. Um, and you and I get I guess what I was it, it it it's so easy I think for anyone to to who anyone who has this that sort of I don't know burning hole in the heart of them of, of just pain and boredom and sadness and trauma it's so easy to sort of stuff that full of complete bullshit that makes no sense when you actually stop to think about it, but which you manage to make a line to your um, personal worldview. Um, which is why, you know, that's why she has the, the poster of a certain musician on her wall. That's the sort of a signal to say, hey, this person, um, she may be the, nominally the protagonist, but she is not, um, I guess, a, a person whose footsteps you should follow. Um, I mean, I think that to to assuage the thing that you'd been gesturing at, I think the 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 notion that your the text of your book could be ascribed to particularly um, slanderous desire on your part as the author about these people, I think you wind up comfortably moving away from that because the book is both very clearly grounded in the psychologies of these characters and using especially the cultural image of people as a reflection point. So like, you're not necessarily commenting about X or Y persons, like actual full human personhood. And and you're very clear on that. The, the fact that it is a poster on a wall is yeah. in part that the production of culture often isn't about these people as people. It's about the way that, um, or the flippant comment before it's about, you see the screen cap of the person, regardless of whether it's in context or not. You and we build out these mythological images to get reinforced and uh, through um, various cultural incidents that reifies like the totemic version of this person or of this event mm. winds up gravitating these kinds of people to it. Um, and again, this I think is part of where your book being, as much as it obviously departs historically and temporally quite a bit. The fact that it's grounded in the present, I think, winds up being to its benefit because it's ultimately about how we in the present view these totems. Yeah, Sh shockingly, uh, if you've read the book, I'm somewhat interested in human beings uh, yeah. being turned into symbols. Um, <laughs> this is a potentially a very large spoiler. But, uh... Spoiling by, by speaking very vaguely then. But um, also, I but, but, think in a similar way to that's what the poster is, right? It's it's a symbol of a person. It's not necessarily actual hmm. person. Yeah, um, it, it, because the the person is not dead. They can't literally be haunting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This, yeah. This is 
just been haunted by an idea of this person that probably mm. has very little bearing on that person themselves. I mean, I Hopefully think has very little, little bearing. Well, it's not know, a ghost is any, like, any given ghost is more, I think, of an, an idea of a person rather than... Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we keep using that word ghost, but there are literally no ghosts in this book. Like yeah, there's there not are, really. Are there. <laughs> no, there, there are no. There is literally nothing that fits the <laughs> description of a ghost in this ghost story. Um, like the closest um, thing is is like the face in the wall, but yeah, almost. Yeah, Longfellow never really dies in a proper sense. Um, hmm. Yeah, we don't. I, uh, can't we really talk about it without doing spoilers? But um, <laughs> we can just yeah, spoil okay. the book. Just do it. Just boom. No, no, no. Yeah, no it's actually, not in America. This is one of the ones I. I <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We got to think about the future. Twenty twenty three. When um, like you're gonna have like Trump, uh, his second term run. You want to no. be enjoying this book at full uh, capacity. We definitely have to see also that. When my second novel comes out. So you get a whole. <laughs> If you're in America, you get a real like double dose of me that year. Um, and you're gonna need, yeah, you're gonna need it. Twenty twenty three is gonna be a fucked year. Oh yeah, twenty twenty four is. Oh yeah, I don't think gonna the twenty twenty two is gonna be any good. I hate to say. Oh well, no, but I think I think twenty twenty two will. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a moment of kind of respite, but then well, I say that now, it's probably gonna be like nuclear war in over Ukraine or something. I mean, no, it, it's, it's the classic uh, Simpsons joke of like, uh, like you're getting uh, stung by death wasps, and you're like, "Well, man, I'm really pining for the days that I was just being ripped by the sea people." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But um, I yeah, like I was saying, there's, yeah, there's no ghosts in this. Ghosts aren't seemingly aren't real in the Tell Me I'm Worthless extended universe. Mm. So, so that kind of begs a question: like, what what is haunting um, the house and the poster? And um, there's even a, like a little aside about this like scary tree that eats a homeless person. Um, like, yeah, what what do you conceive those things as being? Um, I mean, partly, partly, it's it's all a big reference to Kazuo Shiguro. Um, Yo, yeah, that's my guy. Yo, like it's all, it's all that there is. It's not as well. Flip my there is literally a very giant. Um, say it's a reference to Deleuze, and uh, Lander will lose the remainder of his hair. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna absolutely flip my fucking shit and just like dog. I just finished Claire on the Sun. I'm sorry to cut in. I just finished Claire on the Sun. I that book was so it. good. Okay. I was about to read it. I spent so much matter. I was a little like, uh, but I don't know. But I think I just. Between the of the book, I was like, I don't, I don't like. And then it, 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 it starts coming together and I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's good. It's not very I, giant I, good. Very giant. That's the best one, in yeah. my opinion. But and I assume that's the, the the one you were referencing, yeah. Very yeah, giant. There's, there's literally. I think very giant is like probably my favorite book about um, England as a. I mean, in England because it's. I mean, it has such such a smart conception of England as a a mythological 
place and then it's i guess it's all of it's all about what the what what the pain and just misery that goes into making that that um image of england like like yeah. that image of king arthur and like and arthurian legend and all of that it's it's a book about the misery that sort of lies in in like, wake of uh, as as an American, there was something very resonant about both his conception there, and then what I took from from your little nod to it. Of obviously, in America, you get a lot of references to how America was born from the native genocide and the triangle trade. So you have two genocides yeah. of two different groups of people um, birthing America as like the white city on the hill, um, and then Ishiguro obviously doing. Almost, almost like his own version of that, of like Camelot was born from the genocide of these people. Mm. Um, and like the hate, vicious, hateful, like very wicked crimes that get painted in retrospect as divine because they created again, functionally, um, because the conception of race in um, uh, like 300 AD was a little bit different. Um mm. It's like 800 or something. Oh, whatever it would have been. Um, yeah, and then the through line of that being the um, the the buried, like buried, profound pain and violence. Mm. Um, and I just, I think that was that's just a book that's always struck with me. Just be partly because it's not a book that a lot of people like, and I think I that just baffles me that that it's sort of so widely misread or misinterpreted mis, mis, i just i don't understand like normally i'm like fine you don't like the thing but like have you read the book right what i don't get how i don't get how someone can like ishiguro and not like that book and i like i've gotten into arguments with people where they're like oh i just like i don't really see the the anti-british stuff in it and i'm like how the fuck do you not see it? Like he has a literal <laughs> he has a literal knight of the round table being like Arthur told me to to preserve this mist of forgetfulness that keeps people because it keeps people from knowing the horrid horrid crimes that we did to give them their nation. And I'm like how do you how do you not and like how do you read um remains of the day where you go man this guy doesn't seem like he likes england that much and uh mm -hmm. like then never let me go where it's like hmm, i thought maybe he just didn't like the aristocracy turns out he doesn't like the class system or the school system very much and how it produces british culture crazy and then he goes also king arthur a bitch and you're like no that has nothing to do with england no that that, that that's an aside he's just writing a fantasy story for fun I was talking to um, genre authors about that one, and they were like, I don't really see how it's about contemporary England. And I'm like, of course you don't. Of course you don't. You're barely literate. Like, <laughs> literary uh, fiction I snobs think... coming in again with the dunk. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, I mean, partly I literally, I was just like, what if there was a very giant, right? But, but also, um, <laughs> like, the, the, that's also like th this is getting it's not really into spoiler territory because it's not doesn't actually sort of concern the characters in Tambium Worthless. But but the thing that that haunts the house is kind of this 
one of these, the, the potential mythological um, conceptions of England, which is the, is, um, what's his name? The William Blake giant. Um, um, Urizen? No. Yeah, uh, think... Albion, right, right. Albion, Albion. Yeah. sorry. Oh. Um, <laughs> Albion is a thing that, like, it's on my mind a lot just because there's there's so many like Albion things in Brighton, right? Like hmm. the football team is called like Brighton Albion. Um, I think Albion was Theseus's son. I try to I did loads of research in this, but it's gone from my head. But he was also a giant. Um, and and then he he's it, it's one of the the sort of yeah potential conceptions of of England is that there was a race of giants that landed on the shores from ancient Greece um, and were then killed by the Romans. Um, so there, what you have there is a a, a, found, a potential founding myth of England that is about um, white people, giant white people landing on the shores <laughs> from uh, Greece um, and then being wiped out by uh, a foreign invader. So that that was in a way that is what 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 haunts the house is is this sort of forgotten myth um and i'm not i'm not saying it's real because it obviously isn't real and i'm not saying <laughs> that, i'm not saying like that, the, the blood uh, incantation guys you're like no albions <laughs> are real albions are real <laughs> it's more that, that i i i was just struck by the image of this house like amongst these trees and if you dig deep enough there's this thing beneath the earth um that that has been there for as long as anyone can remember but even that like has its own you know hateful myth about what it is um, are you sure you don't listen to doom metal no i listen to doom metal i I okay (laughs) okay i was like it sound this sounds like uh, the dopest doom metal thing, at which I got major vibes of in the book. I, I, I really the, the novelty to doom. I, I guess the doom. I don't know. I don't. Again, I don't really know what different types of metal are. I just sort of. Wait, yeah, well, I like the sound of this, but for my for my curiosity, do you happen to know what bands you were listening to a lot of while you were writing it? Well, I made a. I did. I always want to ask people this, but I never know how to. I tried awkwardly in a couple early interviews, and it just was. It was very, very obviously uh, contrived on my end. I was okay. Well, this isn't. So I was listening to black dresses. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, I was listening Mm -hmm. to a lot of thou. Mm -hmm. uh, A lot of Mm -hmm. Cinderwell. Cinderwell. King woman of doom. Right. That's (laughs) kind of. They're not not doom. They're great. Um, my third album of the year oh yeah it's such a good album um, it's sort of hard to like well, when were we I can Writing see traces of, of at least all four of the ones that you've named so far yeah. inside of the record in terms of um, especially like resonant psychological space I can all, um, I can almost think parts of the book that you probably weren't listening to those specific bands writing those parts where it's like, oh, I can see where the long tail of that would lead to, you know, this little section. Mm-hmm. That's really 
Yeah, I mean, all those bands, they're obviously very different, but they're all heavy in their way, and they're all emotionally mm. very raw. They have the like twin heaviness of both sound and just psychological realism. It's not singing about wizards and uh, King Arthur. You know, it's yeah, which, it's real. I, it's I, real I, shit. Of, I I like I guess music that that the, the music that I write to is I write to yeah metal and I write to film soundtracks generally. Um, and I guess <laughs> I I like something that is kind of pummeling me because that's that's what I'm trying to get across with the the writing often. So I, I do try to pair specifically vibes in what I'm listening to with the vibes of what I'm writing at that given moment. Um, just because I think it, I find it easier to get into the headspace. Um, I can do, I can follow do that, that when you write because mm. um, you're a, you're a, a poet before this. Um, well, you mm. probably. Do you, do you find poetry and music go together as, as well, or is that kind of a different vibe? I generally wrote poetry in silence. I've written poetry in quite a while, though. So I don't know yeah, whether I would... I can't I would... imagine having music on while doing poetry. I've never written poetry, but I can't imagine having music on when you do it. It seems like a very... seems like a weird thing. Like, it'd be like writing yeah, a song while listening to a song. Yeah, you're almost <laughs> trying to create your own, like, soundscape with the poem, and I think maybe the music would make that more difficult. Whereas prose is less, I mean, prose, you are still doing a bit of a soundscape, but it's less um, sort of intense. And I think having, yeah, pairing it with something. So like pairing, I, lis I listen to specifically the Thou album that's like Nirvana covers a lot. Um, oh yeah. I really liked that album. Um, that's a really good record. And it, I, I found it like had a similar sort of hopeless um, vision uh, that I was trying to get at um, in certain sequences, especially the, the cover of In the Pines at the end of it, which is just hmm. sort of devastating. I heard a really good, um, like, like capsule thought about that record, which I think um, fits well with your your book as well in a roundabout way is that their covers wound up a lot of times being wound up being better than the originals in certain ways, because it's as though thou had spent 30 years thinking about what made Kurt Cobain write that song and then got mm -hmm. to play that version of the song. So it's like, it, it's, it's not that obviously I had Kurt lived. It's not that he couldn't have made, you know, the rendition that would be like, and here's, where that came from just they and likewise the then being able to that's ideally what we want i think when when we make art or if, contributions to society in general whether it's like sciences art culture that that someone can build from you not that you become the dead end where it's like no one can can reinterpret me successfully that that almost becomes like a failure in a way because then it's like, oh, you've contributed nothing. Then that's great. Like you're a dead end. Amazing. Um, so you're saying it's like uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. I, I was trying to avoid that, Gareth. Thank you. Thank you. That's like reminding the listeners that I'm bald. <laughs> the shoulders of buried, buried Albion. <laughs> yeah. And it, it 
there's something so i'm i'm a big um one of the things i borrow from my twin loves of uh prog rock and death metal is that the the aesthetic resonance chamber of both the the cover and then the work itself is, is one that's taken seriously in those spaces i mean it's it's not that it's not taken seriously in other spaces it's just that it absolutely is there and that's one thing that i really really love about one about your book in specific that's like this really gorgeous and really emotionally powerful cover that felt it felt like a key image as i was as i was reading the book like it didn't feel like this flippant little addition to it it felt very much like oh this feels emotionally tied to what i'm experiencing there's also specifically the formatting element of the name in big block letters up top and then specifically your name because that's another component of this book that I think grounds it very well. And it's something I notice a lot from prose written by people who are formerly poets, is that even though you had characters, this felt as close to a wildly creative nonfiction psychoscape of you as, as, any, as anything else. And I mean that as a high compliment. It's like it feels very much like you're not trying to make the kinds of dumbass claims that we see like Ian McEwen do now, where it's like, I'm going to like prognosticate about the real way society should. It's very much like, this is how all of this feels to me. This is, and I can tie it to things. I can make it legible to you. I can make you understand where these feelings come from. So, you know, I'm not bullshitting you or making this up, but it felt very much like, I'm having a communion with a person rather than I'm hearing an invented diatribe or an invented like didactic speech about what's wrong and what's good with the world. Like that's ultimately the thing that really caught me. Hmm. I think that comes back to kind of the first thing I said, which is that like, even though we're massively different people, I still saw myself in this because there was ultimately there was another person. And yeah, if you're, Ian McEwen being the voice of God and casting down thunderbolts from the mountain of wisdom on us poor idiots, then yeah, I'm not going to see myself in that person. But if writing a, a real... fucking baby commenting about SJWs, <laughs> oh, that fucking robot! About, what a fucking knob end! What <laughs> about the oh the baby book? How in the fuck Ian. did he go from on Chesil Beach to that? I was. <laughs> <laughs> Hate that motherfucker. <laughs> I yeah, and I had to read that that awful robot book, which is like <laughs> Clara and the Sun if you had a concussion. <laughs> and, so, but, you know, oh, and you were just really Is that that it's never considered? What if robots were like humans? Um, <laughs> I love that line. So thank it's you, just, Ian. You finally cracked you. the case. I like how you have these like. What's ascendants. really good is that. Sorry, what's really good about that book, um, "Humans Like Us," which I put, is on my bookshelf somewhere because the publisher sent it to me. Machines like me. Whatever. <laughs> I don't care anymore. <laughs> it's um, the robot doesn't have to be in it. The robot serves no function in the plot whatsoever. It may as well, it could be completely edited out. You'd still get what's he really wants to be there, which is racism <laughs> and sexism. <laughs> And rape apologia. And what the um, fuck happened to that guy? Um, 
it, it, yeah. it's but, no uh, so what happened to him was um the Iraq war. Um, that did that did do a number what on. happened with yeah what well, happened just... to him was uh being in the british establishment for any length of time because no. as um you correctly noted uh britain is psychologically toxic um it may not be supernatural but it's definitely natural in britain like we see every single day on twitter.com that People who are in Britain are, are the closest to the core of Britain go the fucking craziest. And that includes many of the people you obliquely reference in the book in, a, in ways many, that they can't sue you for. Many, many people. <laughs> yeah. the, the next book is about that in a, in a sort of different way. The next book is more about Britain. The, the Town of is about England. The next book is more about Britain. Oh, we're um, finally getting some Welsh representation about that time. And it's also a, a shift in... I mean, the whole thing is exercise in shifting genres, but it's... Um, for the most part, it's a, a sort of... Uh, Cronenbergian noir um, about um, a sort of mysterious outbreak of uh, brain parasites that are coming from a sex cult. Um, you mentioned and, yeah, um, I'm in. I'm in. I'm sold. You're about to get even more in because um, Arson, you mentioned Nick Land <laughs> being a um, an influence on the the sex cult. Pants. Yeah, yeah. I need to read a fair amount of Nick Land because I, I haven't gotten to. Ah, you don't. And become, <laughs> say, watch, like, watch out with that. I've I've heard awesome, some people awesome. who used to be good say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's don't don't worry. Like. Basically, that I, I I need to read it to, like to get a particular character who is not Nick Land. Um, to I need to get that character sort of accurate, like his his thoughts accurate. Um, so that that's gonna be, but that's that's a little while off. That's in the sort of latter part of the book. Um, but it's it's um it is a, a different mode of writing. It's much more. Um, I don't. I don't want to put you off, but it is kind of more plotty. Like it is. It is more about um, there is a character sort of going through a, we a, a web of of intrigue um, with a solving a mystery. It's just that the mystery is kind of bonkers. Um, I love. I so. I've said this before, and this is less about that specific book, but it touches on a general point. And why? Why I'm still absolutely sold on the book is I think. The we get a bunch of bad writing advice given to writers about like writing is about agency, writing is about choice, writing is about which I don't really think because there's many great stories about about lack of agency and about what life without mm. choice is like. And th this is actually a very common theme, especially for stories about any kind of oppressed person, that it's like it's about the tension between the liberal ide ideology of like everyone is free versus like most people are very not free um that well, instead the, the entire horror genre is a yeah. is is about i guess the tension of characters not having any choice it's um, that if anything the most fundamental like component of writing tends more often to be mystery that's what when we talk about tension and release it's 
built around that that notion of mystery. And the mystery can be a numinous mystery, like a theological or deep psychological revelation. It can be intrigue about political systems. It can be, in the case of like a Neil Stevenson novel, it's mystery in terms of how does the world work in very mechanical terms. And I want to know, but like that's the, and even when pe lay people are talking about spoilers, it's because at root they want the mystery mm. and the revelation. That's what's important to them in a story. And for different people, what the mystery is and what the revelation is are different. So like, I wouldn't want someone to tell me like the emotional guts of your book ahead of time. And like, I think we've done a pretty good job of like, we haven't talked about what the experience of that is like. That's still mm. preserved for people. But for someone else, it may be like, I don't want to know this event. Um, so yeah, no, the notion that your next book is explicitly a mystery. I mean, Philip K. Dick is one of the world's greatest mystery writers. Every single book of his is ultimately a whodunit. It's just a really fucked up whodunit. And you don't always understand who did what. Like, you don't know the what that they did either. Or you don't <laughs> understand it. He tells it to you and you're like, Phil, what? And he's like, anyway, it was this talking dragonfly who's also a baby that's God. The Divine Invasion is uh, a fucking bananas book. I love it. And I am, I think, I've got a couple other horror books in me, and then I, I have like a real unfortunate um, impulse to write fantasy. Um, and so I have a written good fantasy. Not, not anymore. Fantasy um, fucking bangs when it's good. Mm -hmm. Like more do? It does, but and, and, more do bangs. Like, there's some really good fantasy that I've read, and I, I know where I want to position it, you know, but. um. I'm just, it's, it's unfortunate because I'm like, oh God, am I going to be writing a 900 page <laughs> about a frog? Um, Wait, that's tell, the only me, tell me it's legit about, about a frog. Yeah, it is about a frog. Stories about talking frogs, talking humanoid kind of frogs. <laughs> they don't have to be bipedal, just, I'm in. No, I'm not kidding uh, about that, by the way. That shit grabs me. I'm on the spectrum, <laughs> so sometimes that comes out more prominently than other times. I'm like, yo, is that Sonic the Hedgehog with a frog? I'm like, <laughs> um, I guess the, the picture of of, of the, the fantasy that I've been like playing would be, um, you know, Narnia. A bit. Um, I've heard of it. What <laughs> if, what if there was actually a sort of um, land populated mostly by animals that was invaded by some some uh, white. British upper-class children um, who installed themselves as leaders and lived there forever. Um, that, that would be the pitch. Um, That's just Avatar. No. <laughs> 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 Maybe I am just playing Avatar. I mean... <laughs> Is this how you reveal that you're a screenwriter for Avatars 2 through 5? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I wish that. Oh. It'd be really Perfect. difficult because you wouldn't remember any, what any of the characters' names are or what they do uh, or who, uh, Jake, what Jake, Sully like. and Tiri, um, and those are the two characters in Avatar. I, I thought, it turns out I thought, um, you could put anything in Avatar 2 and say that it's a reference to Avatar 1 and I would just believe you. I'd be like, well, I don't remember. That could be true. <laughs> who am I to say? Speaking Avatar 2, I would... Um, I'd probably make it about, um, I'd make it more about having sex with trees. I don't think enough of the first Avatar was about that, and I'd I'd want to explore that in the. I agree. Uh -huh. in the detail. 
Um, yeah, you're you're the kind of writer that I would trust with a fantasy story because it, this ties back to what I mentioned before about a great um, similarity uh, between you and Gretchen. For people who are overly cynical and frankly like hyperbolically shitty about Gretchen, they tend to overemphasize certain aspects of her as a writer. Yeah. The first most important part is she's a tremendously emotionally sensitive and emotionally communicative writer and also mm. a fucking great prose smith like just really goddamn great writer um people get more upset about her front facing and normally just online personality that really doesn't even show up in her writing but the thing about uh, both of you that that i would trust with any capacity there is that you always foreground like Again, I felt like reading your book, I was talking to you. It's not that identity wasn't there, but it was I'm talking to you and you're explaining how these things relate to you as a person, the phenomenological experiential I that gets attenuated by identity. So it's not devoid of that, but it's also like a better framework of it. And so it's like this came through a haunted house novel, but I felt like I was reading the same thing that makes any book good is that like, I, th that's why we give a shit about books in general, even when, whether they're like, I have a lot of, I have fucking Jojo's bizarre adventure literally right next to me right now. And then, you know, I have the Virginia Woolf novel that I'm reading and that, that's the through line for any basically good book. The same book. Basically. <laughs> I mean, what Mrs. Dalloway is basically about a stand user. Um, <laughs> To the Lighthouse is about defeating a vampire who also can stop time. Prove me wrong. <laughs> uh, so, but when you have that, so this is, this is me shading a bunch of uh, writers, some, some of which their work we've talked about here and it has turned out over time, they've revealed themselves to be less what I would like than I thought at the time happens mm. won't say any names that's that's for the listener <laughs> um I, I, legitimately not my place like something revealing itself to not be my taste doesn't mean that it doesn't that it isn't resonant for someone else and isn't whatever but you tend to have that core component which i i tend to see most often honed from writing poetry uh or literary fiction e either one of those two paths that the fact that you would want to take a dalliance and in, into fantasy I'm far more likely to trust you that like the fantasy is there to communicate certain elements of the contrived structural component of the story, but the guts are still very much going to be that like, I'm a poet trying to tell you something about how I see and experience the world. I just need talking frogs to do this. And I'm like, yo, give me those frogs. Give me those frogs. <laughs> it reminds me actually a lot of um one of the things that I really love about Rax King's writing as she shifted into Frankly, if it wasn't her, shit, I never would have read in a million years. But I'm yeah. like, I definitely trust you as a writer. So I'll, and then I read it. And I'm like, fuck, that was a really great essay about Guy Fieri. What the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Like, I'm like, I still don't like this guy, but I get it now. I, I, I understand now. Like, no, I don't like Creed, Rax. I will not like Creed. I don't care that you wrote a beautiful essay about Creed that really moved me to tears. I fucking hate Creed, but beautiful, beautifully done. What's not to like about Creed? You know? Well, aside the from music, the music generally. and the lyrics, um, there's then the, the behavior. Uh, yeah, there, there's that. Um, Mark Tremonti oh. specifically I like because he likes Celtic Frost. <laughs> That's it. 
I don't really like any of his work, but I do like that he likes Celtic Frost because I like Celtic Frost. I think there's something really compelling about um, what I would term as early 2000s, like, I don't know if I'd call it camp, but, but, but like that particular kind of early 2000s culture, which was stuff like Nickelback and Creed and the and film, like, the fact that Nickelback did a, well, the lead singer of Nickelback specifically did a song for the Spider-Man film, and <laughs> there's something that I find really kind of compelling about that era. Um, I, I feel like we should really reclaim that era in a way. I don't know. Yeah. Me, meanwhile, for me, that's the era that drove me into the arms of prog rock and extreme metal because I was like, this shit sucks so bad. Like, I have to leave now. Most of the films are, like, really <laughs> horrible. Like, the trends in... I mean, specifically the trends in horror. Uh, like, this, what they were doing with horror remakes at that point. Like, every everyone other than Rob Zombie was doing something awful and then no one understood what, what Rob Zombie was doing. Like, the, the, no one understood that that was great. But, um... I'm glad that you have that apparently hot take that his movies are good, because I agree. Um, and I like his Halloween. I don't understand why it's a hot take. <laughs> I right? think he's, he's lost his way in recent years, but, um... Like, I I liked Lords of Salem. Like, I don't get... I, people are like, oh, it's so... It's so good. They're like, it's, it's corny like, now. They're like, what are you talking also- about? It's listening to an album, but it's a film. <laughs> right? It's like, I, I think, and what's funny is to me, communicates that that's his aesthetic pretty fucking clearly. That it's like, he's not, people try to critique them because it's like, well, he wants to make a Grindhouse movie, but these don't feel like a Grindhouse movie. It's like, no, he oh. wants to make a movie about what remembering what watching a Grindhouse movie feels like. And it's like, it it's not... It's not a simulacrum. He's making he's making a movie about a memory. It would be a simulacrum mm-hmm. if he made like a really bad copy, like Kill Bill, a movie that sucks. That's a hot take. That's my hot also, take. I keep saying that one. Rob, Rob Zombie <laughs> puts his wife in his movies a lot, and um, as a wife guy myself, I really like that. That's really love that. He also always casts her like she's this super hot badass every time, and I'm like, yeah. man, you love your wife. Love that. Yeah, I've become a Halloween too, where she is like the specter of family trauma. Um, <laughs> but that, that I think is more to do with what Rob Zombie is reading of Halloween is than, than anything to <laughs> Granted, in the 2000s, we did get the Friday the 13th reboot that sent him to space and made him an evil cyborg, which is. That was good. Basically, is, that's like a prequel to. Uh, uh, what's that? Nocturnus. It's a prequel to the Nocturnus records. Is that I like to imagine it's Jason Voorhees, the cyborg traveling backwards in time to nuke the manger. I, the I feel like Jason X is like <laughs> the last. It's one of those things that's the last. Like the real 2000s Friday the 13th is the the like Michael Bay produced remake, which is like it's unwatchable. Um, I forgot that that existed. But well, there was the whole the, the whole trend of Michael Bay produced horror remakes because he did the Texas Chainsaw one, which is I think the only one that's worth anything. Um, it's hard to fuck up Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It turns out, yeah, even if you make one that's just, not as good, I'm like well, I'm inclined. Try, 
They're gonna. Oh, have you seen the trailer for that new one? <laughs> oh, oh boy, have I? I'm willing to um, give it a shot because if any if if anything is proven shockingly resilient to um really bad adaptations, it's specifically the notion of Leatherface because Hooper did such a good job giving such a rich emotional core to the character in that first one. Good lord, it looks like they're testing the limits of that one with Leatherface. Leatherface John Wick. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I find... I, I, just, I find that, like... That trend of horror remakes so interesting, even as I think... I mean, even as I think most of them are horrible. They're, like... American remakes of Japanese and Korean horror that were, were really popular at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, the the remake was not terrible, but... Um... I, I, I actually really like the American. But the American other. Ring, I think, is the best Ring movie. Um, hmm. Interesting. I I did a I did a deep dive not too long ago. <laughs> I I really I'd read the Ring trilogy um, shortly after the Ring came out because uh, a publisher was like, "Finally, we can fucking move these books that we translated a while ago or something." <laughs> and I just I had this vague memory of it like a year, like shortly into the pandemic. So I started a little book club with some friends where we read through the ring trilogy. And I went back and I rewatched all the, the Japanese made for TV movie. Then the first Japanese movie, then the Korean movie, then the American one, or then the Japanese remake of the Korean one, then the American one just got all convoluted. The American one winds up strange. uh... Those books turn into cyberpunk, by the way. Did you know that the ring takes oh. place in a computer simulation? What? Yeah. I think I vaguely did. The I'm events gonna... of the ring yeah. take place in a computer simulation, and the answer to it is Native Americans and immortality. And the deaths of cancer. The most things. It's fucking wild, Gareth. It's fucking wild. <laughs> um, On that note... Yeah, um, I was going to say, we've... <laughs> we've we we do need to sleep at some point. We don't... We don't... You know, five hours ahead of you. We can't. I, as much as I'd love to discuss Native Americans and immortality with you, um, I've I've missed Gareth. That's my emotions for the day. <laughs> no, no, it's allowed to have emotions. Alison <laughs> um, uh, said she was a fangirl quote of the show uh, in a DM, and that <laughs> ruined my day. <laughs> I I I really Sorry, hate being deceived. Back when I had a like a poetry pamphlet, I was like, "Come poetry pamphlet." I know. Um, I, I, I should have bought the poetry on because it would would been good. And I I didn't even know it was about Market Atwood. Oh well, yeah. Well, I, I didn't. Uh, well, I, I was right. Is all I'll say. <laughs> no, I played the long game. In, in retrospect, you were. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like. Allison had reached out to say similar to me, and I at first I was. I was like I feeling like taking on like talking about the work of someone who opens with I'm a fan of the show feels like I'm going to buy into nepotism. So I put off I'm like, oh, now I want to be polite. And then I, I cracked open the book just because I was cu- one. You told me it opens with with a guitar quote. You didn't tell me the other quote that it opens with. So I'm looking at I won't spoil it for people. I will say that when I read the first two opening quotes on the first page, I'm like, was this book written just for me? Did Allison write this book for me specifically? And then I read through the book and I become more and more convinced. Yes, this book was actually written for me. Like I'm the audience. Other people can read it, 
but it's for me. <laughs> like sometimes that's um like here's a, a philosophical historical quote. Then there's something from silly from pop culture. Sometimes that comes off as very corny. This was yeah. Uh, hi, Gareth. This is for you specifically. I've p- published it in this book so you could read it and go ah when you see. <laughs> The um, one of the um, things in the opening of the second part, which I'm not going to spoil for people because I made it, I did scream when I saw that. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that was too, I nearly took that out because I was like, this is too much. Work for me. No, no, it, it, yeah, perfect. it, it fucking rocked. No, I was, yeah, I, I was basically pacing around, shouting at my partner how good it was. I'd been prior to this, I'd been DMing Allison anything. I started like hawking the book in all the different writer spaces that i'm in and like criticism spaces that i'm in i'm like this book's fucking great you need to go like you're british go go buy it it's it's um that's why i thought it was available right now and anytime some of them were like yo i read that book that that was really good i was like screen capping this sending this to allison look look everyone likes your book i was right it's fucking amazing like (laughs) you know I, I, i became legitimately evangelical for like for like a solid three months, I was like, I gotta, it was the same, not, it was almost the same feeling I got when like I read Tokyo Ueno Station. And it, that that one's also mm. one where I still am like, every, everyone, go yeah, buy that book, buy that book, read that, that book. People, like, people are probably sick of me talking about that book right now. Well, Morgan thing. shouldn't have done such a good fucking job translating that book then. And you, Marie, shouldn't have done such a good fucking job. I don't, have you I don't read um, that the other, that. what's the other t- <laughs> Um, the Impossible Fairy Tale by Hanusha. I have not. I'm. It's, oh, it's, okay. It was put out in the UK by the, the same publisher, and it's it's really something. Tilted uh, Tilted Axis Press. Yeah, they yeah, they do like really good. So I, they're all their books are beautiful too. They yeah, really yeah, good yeah. designers. But, but um, Impossible Fairy, fairy Tale. Is, it's it's a tough and really, especially the first half is a tough read. If if you like animals, it's a tough read. Oh. Um, if oh, you no. don't want to read about children being hurt, it's a tough read, um, but oh. it's really... <laughs> this has got all really my triggers in there. It, oh, good. Um, because it's it does something really quite amazing. But, um, so uh, I, I, I like... I like noped out of that... Um, that, uh, that damn book by that guy. Oh, fuck it, will come to me later. That, 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 that narrowed it down a lot. So there's lots of cats being tortured. Yeah, I, was like, I mean, that's the no, only bit this where cats are tortured. But um, <laughs> I would say Impossible Fairy Tale is 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 a better book than anything Murakami ever wrote. Um, not that's Murakami. that's that's a, that's bar. That's, that's that's not even so much a hot take, and in, in I in the kind of circles that like me and Gareth are comfortable with, um, knocking on Murakami is uh, very very easy and very fun. <laughs> like, I don't think he's I terrible. Mean, I, mean, I don't think he's people feel, but he definitely is fine. He know. definitely needs to learn. I'm not the first one to say this: that women are people. <laughs> that's a lesson he somehow has evaded. He's come very close to it. And then he's like the yeah, police woman with thick, luscious thighs. And I'm like, Murakami, <laughs> what, why did you put that in there? And he's like, I'm very horny. <laughs> yeah. The woman is a giant ear with breasts. Um... <laughs> Breast him, uh, the British woman, would be a good uh, Murakami character. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, I'm keeping note. <laughs> 
what, what was the music we were going to talk about? Um, uh, yeah, well, it, well, it's your choice. Uh, yeah, you... Um I think that's how... I don't know if it's pronounced Backwash or Backaxwash. Um, she's amazing. I discovered her this year um, through her album. I... Wait, I just want to get the exact wording right. Um, I lie here buried with my rings and dresses. Yes! I, I don't know how to describe it. It's... It's it's industrial metal and it's hip hop and it's it's kind of everything. It's like being pummeled over the head and it's beautiful. Um, so and uh, the the title track from that album, I think is is just an absolute like astonishing achievement of a song. She's um, so fucking good. Like I I found her through the Juno Awards when she won for uh, her last hmm. record. Um and. It, it, immediately I started DMing that to like everyone I knew in the metal and music criticism space. I was like, check out this fucking album. It's so fucking good. It opens with a fucking Black Sabbath sample. Like, Gareth, did you know that? That her, her last album opens with a sample of the Oh God from Ozzy from the title track of Black Sabbath? I, I've never heard of Backwash before. And which that, is weird because I know she's Canadian. And I know lots of Canadian like alternative music. Backwash is fucking incredible. This album's been on like nearly every year end list for good goddamn reason. I'm so fucking happy for her. I'm so proud of her. Like this uh, black trans, like fucking like hyper talented woman, just like, oh my God. Oh, I'm just, oh, I'm losing my mind. Oh, this is a great goddamn choice. Yeah. Like people slice (laughs) and and apparently what I, I haven't heard it yet, so I can't attest to it, but I will say that it's good what yeah, if the got... body was hip-hop okay <laughs> that's, that's a good good. <laughs> yeah they will eventually record a hip-hop album it, yeah i mean they put out a folk album this year like it's it's coming which was good too it was a really, really good, good folk album yeah. who would have guessed that them and big brave together would have i that's i saw that listing and i was like oh this is going to be sick and then it was but also completely not what i expected i don't yeah Great, great, great record. But, okay, people at home, uh, go read this book. It's so amazing. We can't, like, evangelize about this enough. Really amazing. Like, such a high bar to clear for this uh, Nick Land putting brain parasites in people uh, book and the uh, fantasy book about a frog. Those sound dope as fuck, too. So, get yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's pressure, but it's, I don't know, people liking Tell Me Worthless is all the more reason for me to put effort in <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah put, put a little effort in we, we never do but um likes what I've written so, so far. that's this <laughs> an early critic has, has has been into that so yeah folks at home do go check this out um so i've, I've gone back into presenter mode even though i'm now a guest yeah. Uh, so yeah um langdon canal it has my permission to end this episode
for being right to submission No quarter of religion is born as part of the system I see the, the holy scriptures, politics on the women Prodigies and ambition, the fallacies are forgiven I see lost in addiction, exile for my sisters Colonies and division, robbing me of my diction I feel love and betrayal Prophecies will be living Cause harmony is replaced with atrocity All these bitches I probably never visit Far reaches from kitchen Part of me starts to miss him So part of me in this lyrics The artistry that I'm given Ghosted up in the matrix Almost like our Asians were posted up for this nation Maybe visit Rwanda or Botswana instead Cause these motherfuckers really don't want me until it's dead And these racist bitches up north like God don't love me, okay? I walk around in this bitch, I need my mind, I will say Empty, hello, waiting, everything that didn't kill me sent me I drift, persuade, really no destination Greater station, release me, I'm probation Not again, mercy, mercy, population Empty, hello, waiting, everything that didn't kill me sent me I drift, persuade, really no destination Greater station, release me, I'm probation Destination 